0: Welcome to the Open Assembly Podcast. I'm your host, John Windsor, and in this episode, I chatted with Rob Biederman, co-founder and co-CEO of Catalent Technologies. Rob founded Catalent while at Harvard Business School. It was one of those ideas from a school project that has blossomed into a very successful business. The Catalent software platform helps companies execute work and align the right people to a strategy. This could be both full-time employees and outside experts, or a combination of both. The platform offers visibility needed to digitally orchestrate work, drive alignment and engagement, balance resources, and track work progress against key objectives. Catalan's list of clients include the likes of Unilever, Staples, Pfizer, GE, and many, many more. Please enjoy this conversation with Rob Biederman, co-founder and co-CEO of Catalan Technologies. Hey, this is John Windsor. Welcome to another episode of the podcast here with Rob Biederman from Catalan. Welcome, Rob. Psyched to have you.
1: Good to be here. Good to be here. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Hey, to start with,
0: tell me a little bit about you, not about the platform, not about the work, but just like, where did you come from? What did you do? where did you go to school? And how did you even get the idea to launch Catalan?
1: Yeah, you know, my entrepreneurial story is actually a very entertaining one, and I think a really good parable for those who might consider themselves a founder. So I was one of those people who, as a child, started a lot of businesses in the neighborhood. Probably my crowning entrepreneurial achievement pre-Catalant was breaking bulk on boxes of pizza and pretty big things of Gatorade at summer camp. Yeah. And then I parlayed that into a business in college where I had the cost polos, which were very much the thing in 2004 had them drop shipped from India and sold them to my classmates, but then had a bit of a returns issue when all the alligators fell off, which is very important to a lacrosse polo. And some of my best friends today, actually, I met through selling them the polos and, and they look forward to one day at a potential wedding saying, you know, I met Rob when he sold me a knockoff dress shirt. So, you know, I think I went in a weird way after that. I majored in econ with some time in engineering at Princeton and ended up getting kind of sucked into the Goldman Sachs corporate finance Investment banking track, and ironically, wrote my business school essays about how I'd always wanted to start a company, but then promptly found myself in private equity investing, first at Goldman Sachs and then Bain Capital. And I think over that period, I sort of convinced myself that I really wasn't a founder. You know, if you if you think back to two thousand four, you had Mark Zuckerberg, and you know, all the tech companies during that period were run by people who'd you know majored in computer science, or you know, Airbnb, they were designers, and they were these creative, artsy thoughtful people. And I was like, you know what? I'm very good at math and I'm very good at Excel and I can stay up late at night doing both. So I've like found my track and it's not entrepreneurship.
0: So how did you find your way? Tell us about the founding story of Catlin.
1: Yeah, it's the rare Harvard Business School class project that turns into a, I guess, somewhat successful company. So we're all first year students there and we had a class project, which was to turn, you basically had $5,000 in six weeks and you had to turn it into a revenue producing company. And most of my classmates did things like T-shirts or reversible belts or, you know, marketplace to rent ski equipment was probably kind of like the high end idea. And, you know, I I sat down and i would had a pretty bad experience consuming consulting as a private equity investor before business school. And, you know, I had a feeling that maybe there was this is Uber, TaskRabbit, era maybe there was a chance that we could actually disrupt traditional consulting by offering, you know, people on demand to small businesses who are locked out of the consulting market. And so we really, when we started Hourly Nerd, simple two-sided marketplace, $50, $7,500 average transaction. It was basically like, hey, you run a pizza shop or a florist or a you know, decorator company and you need to prepare your financial statements or apply for a loan or make a PowerPoint deck. We have a bunch of erstwhile investment bankers in business school who will do that work for you. And you know, from that, we raised money from Mark Cuban about, five months in the business and from Greylock and Highland while we were first years in business school. And it was kind of off to the races at that point. Wow. That's cool. So tell us about the platform today. Yeah. So, you know, we're now seven and a half years beyond that. We've changed almost everything except for the two co-founders, but you know, basically, we are now a platform that helps very large companies, for Fortune fifty, Fortune one hundred, Fortune five hundred, go from strategy to execution faster. And we do that with two products. One is the same old talent marketplace, although most of the experts now are not MBA students, and the projects are not cash flow models. They are fairly comprehensive, I'd say, enterprise transformation projects. The average project size is kind of in the fifty to seventy five thousand dollars range, and the experts tend to be more folks with 15 to 25 years of post-MBA experience. Then our other product is a software platform, which companies often use in, in concert with Expert Marketplace to better understand the progress of strategic initiatives, to manage those initiatives, mm-hmm. to deploy internal talent on in those initiatives, and when they you know, don't have the right resource to you know, be able to pull somebody in from the Expert Marketplace.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think that's one of the things that we found you know, in a lot of the research we've done on open marketplaces. It's great to have a marketplace. We know from the research at at the business school, right, at the lab that it's better, faster, cheaper, but yet it's that connective tissue. It's the curation between actually the marketplace and how do you integrate that into the business and and use it to make real
1: useful decisions. Got it. Totally. Yeah. I think enterprises have not taken advantage, obviously. There's a lot of data and individuals using marketplaces. In our opinion, very few marketplaces you know, talent and labor marketplaces have made themselves enterprise friendly. And mm-hmm. so while you have all of these, you know, individuals taking advantage of great service that they're getting from TaskRabbit, Uber, and, you know, all the above, by and large, enterprises have not been accessing marketplaces quite yet. So what categories do you guys work in? The most common use case or buying center is, is probably kind of digital transformation. When, mm-hmm. when somebody is trying to radically alter the the course of what their company does or how they do it or how they provide what to whom. I'm not sure that the traditional consulting firms are quite as good a fit in that area. We do, you know, we always joke that the modal word, if you did a word cloud of every project post ever on their site, actually, I'm curious, what do you, as, a, as an MBA, what do you think is the one word that just shows up in every single project post, regardless of what it's for? Strategy. Strategy is correct. <laughs> we were say, strategy is the modal project type, but then it's also... The second or third or fourth word of every other project type. Right, right, right. No, it's been interesting seeing that mix evolve. Digital transformation was very much conceptual. I think I actually took a class, literally called that at HBS in 2014. And it was, that was still very much a kind of pipe dream that you'd think enterprises would right. care about. There were probably three cases from old economy companies and the others were kind of like Google's digital transformation Amazon's transformation. Now, every company is going through digital transformation. Yeah, for particularly sure. Particularly the old economy companies.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's not something that's nice to have. It's mandatory. So, well, tell us, what's one good case study from the platform, you know, one customer success story that you'd like
1: to tell? Yeah, you know, a, a great one is we had a company, a CPG, that lost their distribution channel. They, they had basically a single distribution channel, slightly unusual one. And they went out and they bid the, having happened to be a very specialty product. And they went out and bid the piece of work for finding their new distribution strategy to, to Bain Company. And it happened that one of our very junior sales reps pinged them right when they were deciding what to do. And the ultimate bid from Bain Company was for $2 million. It was a classic, you know, boil the ocean, knock down, drag out Bain study. You know, that's what you're going to get from them. It's going to cost $2 million. What you're going to get from us Ecom was one of the things they were thinking about was, we're going to give you a former BCG case team leader. We're going to give you a person who ran this specific category at Amazon. And then there happens to be one sort of category killer in this space in the big box. And we have the person who ran strategy for them. And they're all going to work collaboratively. The team has never met. It's going to be $75,000. And they like the team so much that site like sort of unknown to us, I didn't see and They actually... Rolled that team, which is obviously the goal of every big consulting project. They rolled that team for another 50 grand. So they just mailed it to us. We, don't, we didn't even know why we got the check. Wow. Um, and the outcome was that they should both sell through traditional channel and e commerce and have it all digitally backboned. And the whole thing cost $125,000, took maybe six weeks. And it was just such a unique experience, I think, for the buyer that he was on the front of our you know, fundraising deck for, for three years.
0: That's awesome. I love that story. That's so great. So tell us, you know, with this current disruption, not only of COVID, but also economic disruption that we're kind of going through in this current crisis, you know, what are you seeing out there?
1: Yeah, what we're hearing from our enterprises is that we have become more relevant to them. Now, relevance can be expressed in top of the funnel meetings, it can be expressed in pipeline creation, it can be expressed in people signing statements of work. You know, the business has proved relatively resilient, particularly with what we call our key accounts, which are the enterprises that we have penetrated and worked with for a while. I think there's, there's two reasons for that. Each of them corresponds pretty neatly to one side of the business or the other. On the marketplace, with so much uncertainty, you both don't understand the shape of the resources you're going to need because you don't know what, how, how your business is going to vector or where needs are going to be important. But then secondly, you also don't know the size of the resource need. So shape and size on certain full-time talent, not a good choice, very inflexible. Nobody wants to make commitments like that right now. Right and I actually wrote a piece for HBR four or five years ago that didn't get really any attention at the time because it was about flexible talent to manage exogenous supply shocks or demand yeah yeah ah, here we are manage supply under exogenous demand periods and in the other part of the business on the software side, you know people I think did not expect that all of a sudden they were never going to see their colleagues again right, and so we're in this very you know odd period where with Zero warning, every organization in the world has kind of gone flexible. And there are products that work well for managing minute parts of that. So Mm -hmm. Slack is good, Zoom is good. What I don't think anybody has thought really about is more like digital orchestration. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is this the right era to move your company to a more digitally orchestrated sort of set of chassis or set of rails because things are going to happen so much more differently over the next five years? Regardless mm-hmm. of sort of vaccine or any of the above, right. So I mean, right? whatever industry you're in, this new era where your customers have even told you you're significantly more resonant than you were before, like an Uber Eats, or you're significantly less resonant than you were before, like the United Airlines, every company has had some sort of surprise exogenous change to its customer relevance.
0: For sure. For sure. So who are your core customers? You talked a little bit about Fortune 50, Fortune 100 folks, but specifically in any categories or just across the board?
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting question. that We actually get a lot of sort of what industries do we see disproportionate use from. I'm just navigating over to our website in the background here so I make sure I don't spill the beans on any logos that are not. Yeah, yeah, I totally get it. But I think we found that the more important thing than what industry you're in is what sort of company phase you're in. So we always joke that we don't work with the best five and the worst, you know, 20% of companies. We kind of work with ones that have a good business and a business they want to improve. Interesting. So, you know, without reference to that necessarily, you know, GE has been a really fantastic customer for us for a very, very long time. We do a tremendous amount of work with Anheuser-Busch, who's now an investor in our company, Medtronic, Kronos, Hood is a great New England company that we do a lot of work with, Parametric Technologies. You know, it's really across the board. I'd say we probably overskew a little bit to healthcare and life sciences. We probably underskew a little bit to retail and travel, which was not mm-hmm. really good for any kind of intelligent design, just kind of a lucky break that we'd never really scaled in those spaces. Great, that's
0: good info. So what's the biggest challenge? What's the big challenge as CEO of Catlin?
1: Yeah, I mean, like any company that is in a category creation phase, it is difficult to try to educate a market as to a completely new and different way of doing things. I sometimes find myself stupidly jealous of people I know who run companies in spaces that exist with customers that are ready to buy. You know, I think it's, it's certainly always just more challenging when you're creating a space. And I, I look forward to the day when the category exists and everybody's like, oh, yeah, this must be so easy to grow that cattle company because, you know, of course, they already have a market.
0: Yeah. And they've got a kind of category spend they've got to do. Right. they have got to spend so much on open talent. So I also think, you know, this adoption thing, the thing I've been struggling with for 20 years is the idea that not only do you have to innovate and be top of your game to make sure you're the best at what you do and taking into account all the latest technologies, you have to rely on your customers to innovate, right? They've got to actually transform themselves to actually be
1: ready to work with you. Exactly. Preparing yourself to consume is another thing I could go without if I had a choice. Yeah, yeah, totally. So what's the platform roadmap look like? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the the big thing upcoming is really driving deeper integration with all the other great enterprise systems that our customers have. So, obviously, we'll always continue to invest in the kind of like predictive analytics and the platform matching. You know, I think being able to plug into people's ERP and their HRIS and their, you know, probably financial planning systems is really a critical next step for us. We've done it a bunch. We just want to make it even easier for our customers and make it like pretty out of the box API driven. So, you know, it's a pretty relatively low lift tech load. One of the most interesting principles about growing a company I heard was from a VC who unfortunately I don't remember, but they're a great one, which was basically they like to invest in companies that are easy and hard out Mm -hmm. getting started and time to value is very low. Um, but there's a lot of problems once you're already integrated with it and taking it out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I say,
1: you know, and I love them because, they are an investor in Catalan, and I'm personally a shareholder in this company. They're also a customer. of uh, Salesforce. Oh, so cool. Salesforce isn't exactly easy in, but it's much easier in than it would ever be to take out, you know? And right, right, for sure. Every year when I, I'm one of my less exciting jobs is running for chairman of Catalan, and uh, there's only really maybe one or two companies. And I'll, I'll tell you about another one in a second, but Salesforce is on the untouchable list. Like we obviously try to negotiate hard on price and users, but like we always have Salesforce. Yeah, there's a company called Gong that's built very thoughtfully on the Salesforce ecosystem. I don't uh-huh. know if it's technically part of it, but what Gong does is basically uses AI and advanced analytics to understand your calls and then read out to managers in a data-driven way about the success of their salespeople. Wow. And I was so impressed with Gong when we saw the demo and how quickly it ripped through our buying funnel. Our, our CRO bought it in about 10 days that I actually reached out to the CEO and made an investment in the company just because Uh I was blown away at actually how easy it was for them to demonstrate value to us. Right. And I looked at that, you know, sometimes relative to our probably larger long-term value creation, but it's, it's complicated to help customers understand and explain.
0: Yeah, totally. I've got one last question for you. So what would you say to a leader struggling with even getting started in the adoption of platforms like yours,
1: open talent? I think the most important thing is really understanding the problem you're trying to solve for your company. I think people who start from the first principle of we got to be an open talent, I think the success rate, if you split the cohorts, the success rate from people who just top down think they should have a more flexible workforce, a priori, is way lower than the people who think of it as a tool to solve a problem their company has. Right. right. And nowadays, when we see somebody coming at us saying, hey, we're trying to get into open talent. We just cut the conversation off right there. And we say you need to find a budgetable, CFO relevant right. corporate problem you're trying to solve because this is a means to an end. It's not, and just like everything else, no, nobody has Zoom because they think they need a remote collaboration tool. They have it because people can't be together and they need to be able to interact face to face. It's for the same reason that I'm not sure any company's ever done something good that was just because a priori we should be in this because there is a business reason behind it. Right. I love
0: that. And I think that's exactly what the whole industry suffers from, right? They get so enamored, you can't see the forest or the trees. And so focused on open talent, forgetting that open talent has to be applied to big
1: business problems or big innovation problems. Yeah, one of my favorite business books, hopefully along with a lot of other people in the tech ecosystem is The Challenger Sale. Mm-hmm. And it basically posits that the data suggests that the best customers are not the people who out of the box are just totally obsessed with what you do, but it's actually the skeptics that you convert. Huh, interesting. And, you know, I think that's important because a skeptic goes through the whole process of, I don't believe that my company needs this all the way through. And then right. they can bring other people in their company. It's the same way that I've never convinced another person in the world to be a fan of the New York Mets. <laughs> born into it. It's an awful experience. The team rarely ever wins. And so I haven't been a very good evangelist, whereas something like Jackson Hole, right. it's been an unbelievable experience. I've gone through the experience of saying, why would I ever want to fly to Wyoming, blah, blah, blah. And now, having done it. I've turned 50 people into Jackson Hole fans.
0: Right, right. That's great. And Jackson Hole is
1: an amazing place. And the Mets are unfortunately not yet an amazing baseball team. They will.
0: They will be. Maybe this crazy season we might live through that might be
1: helpful to the underdogs. Totally. More (laughs) randomness is good for the non-favorite.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, hey, Rob, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk with us today. Look forward to continuing the conversation soon.
1: My pleasure. Absolutely. It's great to connect